0: Turn with me, if you will, to the book of uh, Joshua, chapter 1. Stand with me as we read the first nine verses of Joshua 1. Joshua 1, after the, Lord, or after the death of Mo- Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all of this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of, of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you Father God, we thank you for your word, we thank you for this, uh, this passage, we thank you for, for Mark, we thank you for this church, Lord. I give this time over to you, Lord, that you would reveal to us your character, your, who you are through your word, and that you would speak to us in this time, and that we would know you better and love you more as a result, and that you would knit us together in, in unity of faith. And uh, just instruct us this time, we give it over to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I, I once had a mentor. Uh, those of you who don't know me, I, I'm I'm not a preacher. I'm am actually a lawyer, and I had a a mentor, an older, very well respected, kind of legendary attorney who who uh, mentored me early in my career. And I was always really appreciative of him, and he, he gave me this piece of advice. He said, Chris, there is nothing more rare in this world than an original perspective. And true, and in keeping with his point, this passage in Joshua is very common to see in installation services. It's something that we see a lot, a lot of installation services that it is used. And uh, churches use it when they 're delivering a charge to a new pastor. that doesn't mean that it 's in any way stale or uninspiring though to the contrary, there's a good reason why it's appropriate to visit this passage during a time of transition and a period of leadership transition and when we 're delivering a charge to new leadership you know let 's set the scene here of where we are in history when we come into this passage you know God had made a covenant with Abraham. He called Abraham and his descendants to be his people. And then those people were later enslaved in Egypt. And then God freed them through Moses. And he, brought them, he gave them the covenant at Mount Sinai. He delivered them the law. And he revealed himself through the law to them. He instructed the people to obey. Now, the book of Joshua picks up. The people are right on the cusp. They're right on the banks of Right on, the, right on the other side of the promised land, getting ready to take, uh, move into the, the border, uh, into the promised land, and Moses has died, and now we have this period of transition of leadership. And chapter 1 memorializes this change in leadership by giving us the charge that's given to Joshua. And this is basically Joshua's installation service, is what we see here. As Israel's leader. And presiding over the installation itself. Giving the charge is God himself. Let that sink in a little bit. You know, this transition, this change in, in leadership is being overseen by God. And he is, giving, he is the one giving these words to Joshua. He was the chairman of the search committee that called Joshua and chose him as the leader. And I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Mark Burks has been a little bit short-changed in this. You know, when you look at who the the uh, head of his pastor search committee and who is given the charge him, you know, it, it doesn't stack up here. I I I can I can I can see that. However, one thing I'm pretty sure everybody on the committee and all of our elders can confirm is this, regardless of the bodies. Uh, that were in the room, regardless of who presided over the agendas, regardless of who uh, is uh, keeping the conversation flowing in, in those processes of calling a new pastor and, and installing a new pastor, the God was the one who was in charge. God was the one overseeing the entire process. God was active and doing it, no matter who happened to be in the room. People have a search coming. I see heads nodding, can I get an amen on that? Yeah. It was it's something we really, uh, I mean, it was supernatural seeing the, the buildup of unity that came through that process, and that's the beauty, that's the timelessness of this situation. The same God who called Joshua, who delivered this charge to Joshua that we have written down from thousands of years ago, this same God is the one who ultimately called Mark Burks. To Grace Evangelical Free Church on Factory Lane in Louisville, Kentucky. And that same God who is working history out for his purposes in this passage is still in business today. And he is still working out that same plan of salvation for his world. And he's doing the exact same things through us and with us. So these words, as true and as applicable, are as true and as applicable to our situation as they were and to Grace's mission in our community as they were to Joshua as he led Israel into the Promised Land. So I think it's important to look here at what is God saying and what is God not saying in this. So what is God saying here? Let's, let's take a closer look. If you look right smack dab in the middle of this charge, we see something that at first blush, and, and maybe it's the legal training in me, it looks to be almost like a quid pro quo that goes on here. Uh, look at verses seven and eight, and I think this is something that we can get really hung up on. Be strong and courageous, being careful, being careful to do according to the law, all, all the law that Moses and my servant commanded. You do not turn from it to the left hand or to right hand or to, to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on a day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You know, we might be look, look at this and read it as God saying, Joshua, I'm going to enter into a contract with you. And here's what I'm expecting. I want you to obey the instructions that I gave Moses. And as compensation, I'm going to give you Success I'm going to give you prosperity. That's one way that it would be easy to read that and look at it that way but Because I was paying attention last week when mark was preaching. I know that When God gives us blessings blessings do not always equal success and prosperity as we would expect them to look sometimes blessings look that come from God suspiciously look like difficulties? I remember that from last week's sermon. I was awake and paying attention there. So this doesn't really, you see the problem here with seeing this as a contract. When we look at it that way, we get both sides of the equation wrong. God doesn't need to contract with us the way I would need to contract with somebody to, say, remodel my house. God doesn't need anything from us. There's nothing of intrinsic value that I can bring to the equation. I'll put it another way. Again, I'm I'm not a contract lawyer. I I don't like to write contracts because I don't like to. Uh, that's a lot of pressure. I'm okay. My my practice of law is I like to come in and after somebody's messed up a situation, I like to fix it. I don't like to keep people from messing things up. But I, so I have a lot of respect for people who have the the uh, the. I don't know the, the gumption to be able and the confidence to be able to write a uh, ironclad contract. But here contract law 101. Every contract, every legally recognized contract has three elements. There has to be an offer, an acceptance, and there needs to be consideration. Someone has to offer terms, then somebody ha- the another the other party has to accept the terms, and there must be some consideration. There has to be some exchange of value for that contract work but that view breaks down in God's economy that's the amazing thing here we have nothing to offer him God never comes away enriched in our dealings with him I, I love the way C.S. Lewis likens this to a child borrowing money from his father to buy a present C.S. Lewis he, he wrote he said every faculty you have your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from movement to movement is given to you by God. If, you're de- if you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his already. So that when we talk of man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I'll tell you what it's really like. It's like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy give me a sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, and he's pleased with the child's present. It's all very nice and proper. (laughs) I love C.S. Lewis. He's very to the point. He says, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence the good on the transaction. So you see, I mean, the father appreciates and cherishes the present that his son gives him, but he's not any richer because it was purchased with what was the Father's already. And that's why looking at this in a contractual nature, it all breaks down. We can never contract with God because we don't have anything to offer him that's not already his. And and this is the amazing thing when you think of the fact of, when you think of God, he makes covenants. Covenants are just uh, a fancy word for a contract. But when you look at God's covenants that he enters, whether it's, his covenant with Abraham or the new covenant. Under human law, these would be unenforceable contracts. Legally, we would consider them unconscionable because they're too one-sided. They're all one-sided. God does all the promising. God renders the payment. In humanity, we just take. There's no quid for the quo. <laughs> So to speak, God makes all the promise and holds himself to the promise. And with us, there's nothing we offer in return. And and we see that in the passage in Joshua, right? I mean, we see that, too. God starts. You notice how God starts his charge to Joshua. He reminds Joshua of all his promises. He reminds Joshua and the people of what he has promised he is going to do. And I find that interesting. Do you find that interesting? It's so upside down from our human perspective. Normally, if somebody makes a promise, who has to be reminded that the promise was made? It's usually not the person receiving the promise. They have an expectation that the promise is going to be fulfilled. Usually, the person who needs to be reminded is the person making the promise. You know, in, in, in a couple of weeks, my family, we're going to Disney World, and you know, we've invested all this time. I've made this promise that, yeah, we're going to go, I've made a promise to, to my kids and to my, my brothers and nieces and nephews, and we're all going to Disney World together, and, and I've made a promise, yeah, we'll be there. And you would think that I would remember that we're going to Disney World. And I am so thankful that I've had my wife to remind me multiple times, hey, we have Disney World on the calendar. Don't schedule anything. And you would think that I would have gotten that right, but I've I've had to move my schedule around. Oh, yeah, I'm going to Disney World. I made that promise. My kids don't need to be reminded of it. They have that expectation. You know, these are... Teenage boys who are excited about going to Disney World, they have that expectation. They don't need the reminder, but I do, even though I made the promise. That's not how God is doing here. That's not what we see. God, In God's economy, he makes the promises, and he is so faithful that he is holding himself to them and reminding us and his people of the promises. His promises are too one-sided to be contractual quid pro quos. You know getting back to the call and his his call to follow and meditate on the law, that we see it's not a contract, so what is it? Well in order to answer this, we must really zero in on the question of what is the law. A lot of times I feel like we as Christians we use terminology and we expect that we know everything, we know intrinsically what it is, but I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves of what are so certain things. And one of those is, what is the law? What's its purpose? And I, and I think we see this throughout Scripture, that there is a lot of wrestling over what is the purpose behind the law. You know, here God is charging Joshua, telling him to study this book of instruction continually and meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to do and to obey everything that's in it. But why? Why, why does he do that? And this gets at the heart of what the law is. What does it mean to follow the law? It's reasonable to ask the question of why is following the law important. Now you might say the law is a set of rules as to how we should live. And you'd be right if you said that. Or you might elaborate and say uh, the rules define right and wrong for us. And you'd be right again. You'd be correct. Or you might say they define morality, but... And once again, you'd be correct, but those answers are still not complete. They don't get to the why. Why is it important to follow the law? And you might say, well, that's an easy one, Chris. If, if we follow the law, we live good moral lives, but you know, again, that presumes that we want to be moral. And maybe from a more self-serving angle, you might say, well, the law is there for our own protection. And following the law protects us personally and allows order in our society. And that's a good point. You got a good point there. But when God tells Joshua to follow the law so that you'll be prosperous and have good success, you know that seems kind of inconsistent, doesn't it with when the psalmist what's the psalmist crowd? He says, "Why do I see the wicked prospering?" You see all the answers all those answers do have an element of truth in them, but they're all incomplete. There's a trap we can fall into where we I've noticed where we can kind of unconsciously view God like, like Santa Claus who is saying to us, you better be good for goodness sake. And we, we go to him with what we want and expect him to give it back to us. And when we do that, it shows that our understanding of the law and at least our treatment of it in our lives is incomplete. And one of the ways I serve here at Grace, and I've done this for years, is I, I teach high school and junior high Sunday school. I've taught adults before. We had this conversation in our elder meeting. I've taught adults before. Uh, I don't like teaching the adults. I don't like teaching you guys. I really find it enriching to talk to the, the youth here. But, you know, one of my concerns, one of the things that I always get nervous about is that I'm going to start getting, like every Sunday I get nervous, and and, and Brian teaches it with me I don't know if if he feels these nerves too maybe it's just me I always get a little nervous that I'm going to get angry calls from parents or something like what are you teaching these kids you know luckily two of them are mine so I I can feel the angry call from my wife that's fine Um, but the reason why I have some of these concerns is not because we're teaching heresy or anything like that it's because we ask some tough questions and the the desire there is to kind of strip away some preconceptions and traditions and really get to the heart of why do we believe what we believe. And I know this is an aside, an aside but a, the interesting thing that I, I was listening to a podcast one time that had uh, it was Mike Cosper having a, a conversation with Justin Fournette. Justin Fournette was a former NFL running back, uh, all-pro running back, and he made a comment that really hit me. He said when he he was giving his testimony, he said when he was, his greatest period of spiritual growth was when he was in college. He said his love of the Lord exploded when he was in college. And he was talking about this idea that, you know, our conventional notion is that kids go to college and they, they they have this influx of drinking from a fire hose of influences and that they lose their faith. And Justin Fournette said, they don't lose their faith. They lose their parents' faith. And once they lose their parents' faith, what is stripped away and what's left is what they had for themselves and their understanding. And so that has motivated me tremendously to try to really get to why do we believe what we believe and to really get kids thinking about that. And, And so one week... I was probably more norm- nervous than normal when we started to ask questions about the law. wanted to really get into this conversation. What is the law with the students? And so the way we started this conversation, we introduced it by looking at two passages from the Gospels. We looked at Jesus healing on the Sabbath and Jesus and his interaction with the woman who's caught in adultery. These are really uh, pretty familiar passages. And the healing on the... P- the Sabbath passage in Luke goes like this. Jesus heals this. There's two passages right next to each other. Jesus heals this uh, disabled woman. And another time he heals a man who's, uh, I, I love it, the ESV talks about he had dropsy. I was like, what is dropsy? Luckily, the NLT says his arms and legs were swollen. He had, he had this disease with swel- swollenness. And both times he was questioned, and he heals them, these people on the Sabbath, and he gets questioned by the scribes and the Pharisees And the teachers of the law and they point out, wait, the law says you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath and you're healing on the Sabbath. Why is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus responds and points out their hypocrisy and points out that, you know, you would save an injured animal on the Sabbath, but you're not willing to. You're going to find fault with healing the sick. And then the other situation is another familiar passage in John with the uh, woman who's caught in adultery and there she's about ready to be stoned and the the scribes and Pharisees they bring her to Jesus to basically ask they present to her and say this is what she has been found to have done and ask him to render the sentence and what Je- Jesus acknowledges is that the law requires execution but then he proclaims let the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone and at And after that, all the accusers are gone and all that's left is a pile of rocks. And Jesus looks at her and says, where are your accusers? And he says, I'm not going to accuse you either. And he sends her home. These are beautiful, rich passages. But what we did is we asked the question, is Jesus breaking the law here? Because the law had said, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees are quoting the law to him, saying the law says you have to do this. And Jesus is doing something different. And we weren't letting them wiggle out with uh, with answers. We kept going into that, is Jesus breaking the law? And what made me so nervous that week was we didn't finish. And, and we left them with that question and they left. I'm like, oh my, what are the, like, I don't want the kids to go home and start telling, you know, Mr. Chris is telling everybody that we're, Mr. Mellon's telling everybody, telling us that uh, Jesus is a lawbreaker. But I gave him the spoiler alert. I don't think he is. We'll get to why not later. So why not? Why? why, What gives here? We did resolve that question after we wrestled with it. And we should wrestle with the role of the law in our understanding it. Because if the law is simply a set of rules, then in these instances, Jesus doesn't appear to follow the rules and he would be a hypocrite. And it's not enough to say, well, Jesus is the law incarnate and he can do as he pleases. Because if Jesus just does what he pleases and he says one thing and then goes back on it later, then he's at best arbitrary and capricious and at worst corrupt. So, Where we wind up with this, where we came to grips with with this is either our understanding of Jesus is wrong or, the more likely scenario, our understanding of the role of the law as we were looking at it as a set of rules was wrong. And looking at Scripture, we come away with the conclusion that it's the latter. That the law is something more profound than just a set of rules to live your life, to have a good life. Now, confession time here for me. I'm interested in, any, in the rest of you this way. I don't read, I, I like to read, sort of. Um, I don't read, if a book has a prologue or an introduction, 90% of the time I'm skipping straight to chapter one and I'm not reading the introduction. You know, I've never understood why they add 30 pages of introduction before getting to the story. I'm not reading. Anybody else? Does anybody actually read those? Like if there's a prologue? One of the two of us. Great. <laughs> I saw a half of one over there. Half half hand go up. Well, when God gave the law, he gave a preamble to the law. And when he spoke to Moses. Turn with me to Exodus 19. Keep your finger in Joshua, but let's turn to uh, Exodus 19. Exodus 19, he... This is uh, God as he's giving the, the law to Moses. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Then there Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So here is the preamble. God explained why he's given the law. And what the law's purpose was supposed to be. Did you catch the purpose? His purpose is that the people would be what? Maybe would be his treasured possession and a kingdom of priests. Now, what do the priests do? What's their role? The priests act as a mediator. Uh, uh, the priest, he represents the people to God and then turn around and he represents God to the people. That's why God dealt so harshly with Eli's wicked, corrupt sons who were priests and who were uh, corrupting everything and, and stealing uh, the sacrifice and growing fat off the sacrifices. They were giving the people a representation of a corrupt God. But here in Exodus 19, God says that by following the law, we show this world what God looks like. We fulfill our purpose as image bearers. And how does the law fulfill this? Because the law itself is a description of God's character. We, who, we know who God is by the law. We know his character because of the law. Do not commit adultery. Why? Because God is faithful. Do not steal. Why? Because God is generous. Do not bear false witness. Why? Because God is honest, true, and incorruptible. Do not kill. Why? Because God values your life and cares about you. He wants the you're precious to him. You see, this is why Jesus doesn't outright condemn the adulteress here. Or, and this is why Jesus heals on the Sabbath because God is both just, but he's also merciful. And the, the law shows us this. So when Jesus is doing these things, he is not breaking the law. He is acting in accordance with God's character as the law shows it, as the law has demonstrated it to us. That's also why the scribes and Pharisees aren't getting this, because they are treating it as a to do list and a prescriptive, legalistic text. You know, this is why the psalmist says, I love your law. You know, you, it, it's interesting. The psalmist over and over talks about, in different, various psalms, says, I love the law. And uh, to me, that's always been kind of interesting, because when you read, you. you Ask anybody who's read the Bible straight through, what do people say is the hardest portion to get through? It's usually Leviticus. I mean, I'm not sure that the psalmist is really saying, I really loved reading about restitution situations, and I really, you know what was great? I really loved reading about how to diagnose skin conditions. You know, there are whole chapters in the Levitical law about you know, devoted things like mold and you know, what to do when you see a hair growing out of a mole and things like that. And I'm not sure that the psalmist is really talking about that, that I love those portions. What the psalmist reads these portions and sees is that, you know, he realizes that God is pure, that God is holy, that God is involved in the minutia of our lives, that God knows all the freckles and moles on our skin and cares about us the psalmist loves the law because the psalmist knows that by meditating on God's word we know who he is and we know his character better you know when i first started dating sarah you know we i kept a picture in my pocket of her you know i think like from like school and i think she even like wrote something on the back of it and i would, probably had letters and cards as she sent me and i would look over them all the time and i would always from time to time look at why was i doing that because I really wanted to be reminded of who she was, what she looked like, what she had said to me, like what her character was. And now, you know, after 22 ma- years of marriage, last night we went out to, and got a burger together and ran errands together. You know, it might have been more uh, efficient if we'd have split up and done the errands separately, but why did we go together? Because I wanted to talk to her. I wanted to spend time with her. I wanted to know her better, know what's going on. Even after knowing each other for 27 years and 22 years of marriage, I wanted to have more conversations with her. I wanted to know her better. And I valued relationship over the efficiency that we could have had there. And that's the way it is with the Lord, right? I mean... We should long to spend that time together. and, and what, So that's why the psalmist says, I love to meditate on your law because he desires intimate relationship with God and to know him. Which brings us back again to Joshua. I told you to put your finger in it and keep it there. Why does God command Joshua to be careful to do everything that the law commands and to not let it depart from his mouth but to meditate on it day and night? He says it because God wants Joshua and all his people to know him and know who he is god's desire is to have relationship with his people he writes us this description of his character and he in this entire bible is a revelation of who he is one one year in in our high school sunday school we actually went cover to cover what is the story of the bible and it, it was one of the most fulfilling things I've ever had because the last day I asked the question, what did you learn? And so one of the like a freshman in high school raised his hand and he said, you know what? I, I learned that the really the Bible is just a story of God wanting to have relationships with us while we just, you know, want to have control. And I was like, <laughs> oh my goodness, they got it. <laughs> you know, that is amazing. was very rewarding. And that's really what this comes down to. God is giving us this this description. He's saying, if you love me, and you love the description of who I am, and when you go and introduce me to the people around you, don't paint a bad picture of, of me, who I am. Instead, show your friends my goodness. Know who I am so you can reflect it. Tell them, show them an accurate picture of my love and my compassion look at the promise he makes in verse 5 he he says a very simple but profound promise he says I will be with you everything hinges on the profundity of this statement that the God of the universe the God who created everything and sustains it the omnipotent God who exists outside of time and space who sees all of creation at all time in history and future all at once the stuff we can't even understand, this God who is so big we can't even comprehend him, he seeks relationship with us. So why is this passage important for an installation service? Well, because it's as true now as it was then. God is with us. God wants to have a relationship with us. And our neighbors, the people who you know, we oftentimes get frustrated with. The people, you know, we may even decry them as enemies of God. Yeah, guess what? He wants to have a relationship with them too. He is saying to Mark, to Joshua, to Mark, to each one of us, draw near to me. Get to know me. And then as you fall in love with my character, show my character to the world around you. And here at Grace, we have this this stated vision, this mission. We want to celebrate and share the love and the truth of Jesus. And we must grow in our intimacy with Him so that we know His truth and love. We know who He is. Then when we're filled with our knowledge of His love and truth, it should overflow from us. And it's this trickle-down effect. You know, Grace is in a new period, a new chapter in its history, and, and this passage encourages the leadership of this church to never cease growing in the knowledge of the Lord and never cease to fall head over heels in love with God as He reveals Himself in His Word. And to follow hard after God and and then to overflow to those who are under this shepherding care. Help them see who the Lord is through you, that you too might thereafter draw that they might draw nearer to him. And we replicate this through our spheres of influence from relationships within the church to husbands showing God's love to their wives, to mothers and fathers showing it to their kids, uh, older brothers and sisters showing it to their little younger brothers and sisters. We all have influence in our communities that we've been placed. No matter who you are, whether you're in the golden years of retirement or you're in grade school, you have people who look to you who you have influence over. And if we follow God, and we follow God because others are following you. We saw in our uh, recent world history what an infectious spread of disease can do in our world right I mean our world is forever changed but what if we chose to draw close to God what if we chose to love him so much and grow in our love with him and his character that it infected us and spread throughout our communities what if those people who we came into contact we were scared to death of contact you know for the longest time uh, you know and but what if the people who we grow come into contact with wouldn't get infected with a disease, but would be infected with God's love and come away knowing that they were loved because we were spreading that. We were so overflowing with God's word, uh, God's love through his word and his character. What change would it have on our community? What change could Grace Evangelical Free Church have on our surrounding community, on our city, on our state, on our nation, on our world? if we know him and love him so much that we can reflect that love to those around us, that they would seek him as well. This is God's charge, not just to leadership at Grace. It's God's charge to the leadership to shepherd us as we do it, but it's to each and every one of us here at Grace. Uh, to to truly, as we even say we're doing it, celebrate and share the love and truth of, of Christ. And uh, just... On this installation service, you know, I, I pray for Mark as he starts the job of shepherding us, as he's already started, but the job of shepherding us in that. But I also challenge all of us as well as partnering together with that mission and taking that mission to heart. So let's pray uh, to that end. Father God, I, I lift up grace to you right now, this this church family. I'm I'm thankful for, uh, and excited. Every time there's a new chapter, Lord, uh, there's an element of of newness and excitement. Lord, just recommit. I say we would recommit ourselves, build up in our hearts this desire to follow that, that mission of infecting this world with your love, of drawing nearer to you, to loving you so much that we would spread that to everyone else that comes into contact with us. That this world would know you better and that we would impact our community and our world for you and show this world who you are and do it accurately to those we come into contact with. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.